<laughs> I was going to, I mean, there's, you talk about like lead foot, feather foot, you know, people that drive fast, people that drive at a modest speed. There's also people there. I think there's two different kinds of people. Those that are, don't hesitate to lay on the horn and lay it on thick. Right. And then there's people, I don't know if this is you where you kind of hesitate to, to honk. Is that you? Like, you know, you're like, I don't want to kind of the very beginning. I don't want to offend them. I'll honk, but usually when I honk, it's not like a, a drawn out one second honk. It's like 0.2 seconds. It's like a little beep, like just enough where they're like, they don't even know if you honked at them or not. They just looked up from their phone and they realized the light's green. That's the way I like to honk. But you know who doesn't hesitate to honk? People from the city, people from big cities. I should probably honk more because I used to drive around DC all the time. There's a lot of honking there. There's even more honking like up in New York City. There's even more honking like when we went to India, some of these most the biggest cities in the world in terms of population. New Delhi is just a chorus of honking. Uh, Raj's orphanage was in a city called Pune, which you probably never heard of, but it's one of the top 100 most populous cities on the planet. And uh, Raj's orphanage was right off a busy road. And it was probably more honking than breaks between the honking. It was just a steady stream of people laying on the horn. And that was normal, not because they were, they're not angry people. They're not uh, aggressive people. It's just the norm. They honk a lot. But most places is different. Like here, again, in the South, anytime somebody like a pastor visits from the North, they're like, everybody just moves slower here, right? Like, so we're not in a rush. We don't lay on the horn as much, typically. And it's kind of like the beginning of that video where he honks and the guy, he's offended. Like, I don't want to just offend anybody. I just want to go through the green light when it turns green, right? <laughs> Case in point, Steph and I were down at Virginia Beach uh, this week and we were driving uh, right off Virginia Beach Boulevard, we're at a light. The light turns green. We're talking like a second, maybe. You know, like the person next to us wasn't scrolling on their phone. They just were leisurely taking their foot from the, gas, from the brake to the gas pedal. Probably, again, a, a second tops, and the person behind them just lays on the horn. So what would you do, right? What would Jesus do? This person said, oh, you're going to honk at me, right? I'm going to take my foot off the gas altogether. Person behind honks again. Person in front doesn't put their foot on the gas, and then all of a sudden he goes to pass them. And before you know it, it's like cat and mouse. They're flying down the road because you're not going to pass me. You could just see the escalation. And it was, to me, it was amusing. I'm just like, don't get in an accident. Uh, but it was amusing because here's the reality. Cars are driven by humans, and humans make errors. Uh, the Traffic Safety Administration says that about 94% of all auto accidents are due to human error. So the question becomes, okay, how do I respond to other drivers when there's an error? Let me read some stats from the National Traffic and Safety Administration. It says half of drivers admit to resorting to horn honking, light flashing, rude gestures, shouting, and aggressive driving after another driver has done it to them. Sometimes such aggression takes a step further, including tailgating, short braking, even bumping. And about two, that happens a lot in New York City, and about 2% of drivers admit to attempting to run another aggressive driver off the road. And if this wasn't scary enough, over two-thirds of road rage incidents involve at least one firearm, which obviously increases the danger level when people are emotional. And for all of these reasons, there's typically, on average, 30 deaths due to road rage in America every year. Like, road rage is, is serious. And a lot of times, it's not the human error, the initial human error that causes the damage or the accident. It's the, the rage that comes after that and the aggressive driving after that that actually causes the accident. And I share all that because on the road of life, as we follow God on our, our path to follow him and on our journey, 
we're not all alone. Every day we're surrounded by people. We're created for that, right? This isn't some country road that you're walking in silence. We're surrounded by people daily. We intersect people daily. And sometimes there are near misses and sometimes lives collide. So road rule number four, it's not super creative, but is thou shalt not road rage. Because in life, on the proverbial roads, not the real runs, I'm, roads, what I'm talking about tonight specifically is offense. And I even got to kind of dial that in because offense has multiple meanings. Like body odor is offensive to my sense of smell. <laughs> uh, spoiled milk is offensive to my sense of taste. Raj's dirty diapers are offensive to like all five of my senses simultaneously. But I'm not talking about that kind of offense. I'm talking about the kind of offense where it's feelings of anger provoked by somebody else's actions. Somebody else did something, we're offended. And again, day by day, we're surrounded by plenty of people and none of them are perfect. And that adds up to plenty of stimulus that we can find to take offense to. I mean, you turn on any sort of media in the morning or at any point during the day, and it seems like they're all answering the question, all right, what are we outraged about today? What are we going to be offended about today? It's like our, our, our culture feeds off of it. It's fueled by it. Our world spins on this axis of offense. And it's no secret that the church isn't much better at it. And here's the dirty secret about our outrage addiction is deep down, I'll explain this a little later, we all kind of like to be offended. And again, I'll explain why, but while we're telling secrets, here's a little dirty secret about scripture. It's kind of like statistics. You can take a statistic, isolate it from context, and kind of make it say whatever you want. Kind of do that with scripture too. Check this out. In uh, Ephesians 4.26, it says, be angry. Some of y'all are like, yeah, I'm going to memorize that one. It's short. I can memorize it, and it's useful. I could use that one this week, right? (laughs) Be angry. Now, this isn't Jesus speaking. It's actually the apostle Paul, and he's Quoting King David from Psalm chapter 4. So that's a pretty close second, right? David being quoted by Paul, right? That's pretty important. And we can quickly deduce that anger in and of itself, right? That, That first response to anger isn't a sin. Jesus felt anger, yet he was without sin. Never sinned. He felt the whole gamut of human emotion, yet was without sin. Things are gonna happen that are gonna make you angry. That in and of itself is okay. It's okay. But if you keep reading... Paul in Ephesians chapter four, you get to verse 31, where one translation says, stop being angry. And you're like, okay, this is getting hard because it looks like you're contradicting yourself, but that's why context is key. Context is important. Let's look at those verses with the verses around them. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He goes on to say in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness Rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So we see in verse 26, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And he's laying the groundwork for what's not a contradiction, but it's actually supporting it in verse 31, where it says, get rid of your anger. Again, anger will happen. Sometimes rightfully so. Somebody offends you, so you get angry. We just don't get to keep it. In a culture of outrage addiction and constant offense, anger can end up taking residence in our lives in the form of resentment, where it makes home with us. It becomes unforgiveness. 
We don't get to make anger our pet. It's kind of like when you catch the, the animal in your garden. It's catch and release. You don't bring it into your house so you can have it. You take it somewhere else and get rid of it. That's what we're supposed to do with our anger. Because, again, offense will happen. Anger will be provoked. That's not a question. The question is, okay, what do we do with it? We can choose resentment and let anger take residence, or we can release it. But offense is even trickier than just straight anger because offense isn't just any anger. It's anger that's provoked by a perceived offense or insult. We've been slighted, right? So we feel the right to anger. There was an accident, proverbial accident, right? There was damage, and it was their fault. Yet, to hold on to our anger, according to Ephesians 4, would be to give the devil a foothold. The biblical's call to forgiveness means to forfeit our right to it altogether, to release the offense, or even better, overlook the offense. But you're talking, this is getting hard, right? Because again, we're surrounded by people every day, none of them are perfect, and offense happens. How do you just overlook it? Well, I want to turn again to 2 Samuel 16. And this passage is about King David, who again wrote Psalm 4, where he said, in your anger, do not sin And he, like any good leader, he leads by example. He walks it out in this text. And I want to preface it tonight with context because, again, context is key. It's just easier said than done because David's life, I swear, has more twists and turns than a Hollywood blockbuster. Highs and lows, twists and turns, all kinds of things happening. Like David was anointed to be king after King Saul. King Saul was Israel's first king chosen by them. David was chosen by God to succeed him. And Saul wasn't exactly keen to all of David's fame, so he tries to kill him. Not once. We're talking like a half dozen times, again and again and again. Saul tries to kill David. But David refuses throughout this entire ordeal to return any of those attacks and in that become like Saul. So he patiently waits. He waits in hiding. Eventually, he takes the throne. And then many years into his reign, his son Absalom shows him none of the grace that David shows Saul, and he actually throws a coup. Right? He, he tries to take the throne, and David shows an insane amount of humility and meekness by abdicating and leaving. Right? So he's on, his road, on the road out of Jerusalem when we meet him in 2 Samuel chapter 16, and I want to read verses 5 through 14. I'm going to preface it. I looked up how to say the name Shimei, 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 I don't know. There's about 20 different ways, so we're going to go with Shimei because it sounds cool. It says, as King David came to Bahurim, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shimei, son of Gira, from the same clan as Saul's family. He threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors that surrounded him. So I got to give him a little credit. He at least had some courage because he's throwing stones and all the mighty warriors are surrounding David. He said, get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel. He shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne, and now the Lord has given it to your son Absalom. At last you will taste some of your own medicine, for you are a murderer. Now one of David's mighty men says, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king, Abishai, son of Zariah, demanded? I love this. He says, Let me go over and cut off his head, please. (laughs) No, the king said. Who asked your opinion, you sons of Zariah? If the Lord has told him to curse me, who are you to stop him? Then David told Abishai and and to all his servants, my own son is trying to kill me. Doesn't this relative of Saul have even more reason to do so? Leave him alone and let him curse. For the Lord has told him to do it. And perhaps the Lord will see that I am being wronged and will bless me because of these curses today. So David and his men continued down the road. 
And Shimei kept pace with them on a nearby hillside, cursing as he went and throwing stones at David and tossing dust into the air. Says the king and all who were with him grew weary along the way. So they rested when they reached the Jordan River. So we see in this passage that Shimei was an angry, offended man. And we see this clearly. He was harboring offense because of what David had supposedly done to Saul and his right to the throne. It's not clear, but it sounds like he's blaming David for Saul's death. When if you read scripture, Saul in a battle with the Philistines falls on his own sword so that the Philistines couldn't capture him. So in all of this, you look at the other side of the coin too. He's offended, and yet we have David being cursed, having rocks thrown at him, right? Receiving this injustice, and he just overlooks it. Not only does he not hold on to offense, it's like it doesn't even register. It's like, all right, guys, let's keep it moving. And it's clear. You look at this. Shimei had no intention of reconciling. He wasn't looking for reconciliation, but he had offense and he was going to air his grievances. Maybe you know people like this. They hold on to offense. They're angry because of something that was done to them. They're not even really looking for reconciliation, but they're, they're holding on to the offense. Why do we do this? Why do we do it? I would argue because, like I said it before, holding on to offense, low-key kind of, it kind of feels good because offense gives us a sense of moral superiority, right? We've got something on someone, and it makes us feel more righteous about our behavior when we can take offense at the behavior of others. And I bet Shimei would have told you here that he was filled with righteous anger. And righteous anger is a thing. It's how we describe being angered by what angers God. Injustice, right? The breaking of his commands. But I'll tell you often what we call righteous anger, more often than not is, is self-righteous anger. Because again, we, we, we can feel more righteous about our behavior when we take offense at the behavior of others. There's a lot of Jonas in the church. Yeah, I'm talking about Jonah and the whale, but I'm not actually talking about the incident with the boat and the whale. I'm talking about the end of Jonah. You get to the end of Jonah, Jonah's more upset about a plant that was covering him with shade dying than he was about the spiritual well-being of well over 100,000 people in the city of Nineveh. God had sent him, right, after the, the whale had swallowed him and sent him there. He had rebuked them for their wickedness, only to be incredibly disappointed when they actually repented. Jonah was, wasn't really interested in seeing them changed and restored, but he was interested in standing over them. And this feels like a pretty relevant heart check for our culture because so often in church culture we act like we're not interested in calling people from their sin we just want to call people out for their sin you know we can't confuse this concept that we've come to call righteous anger and come to this conclusion that anger can live in our heart alongside with righteousness James 1:20 makes it simple and plain human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires talk about produce talk about fruit Look at the fruits of the spirit. Anger runs counter to so many of them. Think about peace, namely, right? Gentleness, love, self-control. Look at wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Talking Proverbs, Psalms, uh, Ecclesiastes, and the like. Throughout wisdom literature, they make a living off this juxtaposition between the fool and the wise. You got the fool over here, and you got the, the wise person over here. And you read throughout all of wisdom literature. Anger is always, without exception, 100% of the time associated with the fool, not with wisdom. 
Ecclesiastes 7.9 is actually a great verse for tonight in our offense-saturated culture where it says, don't be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Where does anger reside? Again, not with the wise, if you're going to take that juxtaposition, but with the fool. And it tells us two things, right? In anger, it may come to us, but it tells us not to be quickly offended. Don't be quickly provoked. Secondly, it says anger may visit us, but we can't let it take up residence. Another translation doesn't say the lap. It says the bosom. Another translation says the heart. What it's really saying is we can't let anger and offense take up residence where it becomes our pet feeling where we get worked up and we go back to the anger. It's echoing Ephesians 4. That, you're not gonna, that you are going to feel anger. You are going to feel offense. We, don't just get to, we just don't get to hold on to it because it gives the enemy a foothold. But you know, as I'm studying this, just this idea of offense and even just this idea of righteous anger, because it's a tricky one. And I'm thinking, well, what about injustice? What about injustice? You look at David again. David suffered injustice. David, one of his first encounters with Saul is Saul was just an angry dude. He had a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. And David would come in and play the harp, play music for Saul, and it would calm him down. One of the beautiful things about worship, I can come in here raging, not literally, but then we sing worship and man, it can just shift your perspective, calm you down, remind you of the goodness of God. And so David would come in and play for Saul, but sometimes he would still boil over. And one time he threw a spear at David trying to pin him to the wall. And he didn't just do this once, he did it twice, right? Throw a spear at me and try to pin me at a wall and miss once, shame on you, right? Throw a spear at me and try to pin me to the wall twice, and I don't spear you with it. Shame on me, right? It seems like self-defense. It seems logical in, in light of this injustice. He's trying to kill me, yet David refuses to throw any spears back at Saul because in his mind, that's just going to make him like Saul. So David, he flees. Saul chases him down. Multiple times while Saul is chasing David, David's hiding from cave to cave. David has the opportunity to kill Saul. Once, when Saul goes to relieve himself in the cave, David was hiding in. Like, you can't make that up. It's in scripture. The second time, David, he's surrounded by two guys. He's like, hey, who wants to go with me into this camp and just sneak in? David's wild like that. Another, wild, another guy who was with him was Abishai. The same Abishai was with him. And so they get all the way into camp. They're standing beside Saul. Saul's asleep. And Abishai's like, hey, let's take his spear and let's pin him to the ground with it. This guy's been trying to kill you. You have motive. You have a weapon. You have a reason. You're justified, right? This guy's been trying to kill you. Make a, a Saul kebab. Pin him to the ground. David's like, no, no, I refuse to. To David, that was God's anointed and God was going to take care of it. If, if God had anointed him and God had anointed David, he's like, God can sort it out. I'm not going to take vengeance into my own hands. And then later, right, we finally get here. David's son Absalom is overthrowing David. He doesn't grant David a fraction of the grace that David showed Saul. And David, again, he could have retaliated. But again, in meekness, he leaves Jerusalem. And here on this road comes Shimei, who is accusing David of injustices against Saul. He's cursing David. And in that, he's disobeying God. It says in Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, do not curse the ruler of your people. So as this is going on, again, Abishai's over here. He sounds a little bit like Peter. <laughs> Flips up, comes with these ideas that are wild, off the handle, slightly violent. He's like, let's cut his head off, right? Let, let me just go up there and take care of this guy that's cursing you because this is an injustice. But again, David says no. 
right? Like if God wants Absalom to have the throne, it's going to happen. If he wants me to have the throne, God will take care of it. It's a lot of faith. You see, David suffers injustice again and again. If I'm honest, I've had it pretty good in life. I haven't suffered a lot of injustice. I don't suffer a lot of injustice day to day, but it sure is in the world around me, right? I see injustice every day through systemic injustice, right? Injustices that affect all of our society through racism, classism, sexism, all the other ugly isms and schisms that the enemy can use to to feed division into society. And God hates all of the above. So if you watch the news and you feel your blood boil when you see injustice, just know, hey, that's not a sin, right? That's an emotion. What are we going to do with it? Because God hates all of the above. The Bible makes it clear God hates injustice, right? But we have to keep this in mind throughout life, especially with conditions in our culture. We can't confuse anger with action. We have to separate the two. Anger and action are not synonymous, Because so often in our culture, and I've been guilty of this from time to time, where I feel like if I'm not worked up or angry or have a response for a situation, then nothing's going to be done about it and I'm not really reacting to it. So false. So false. You know, there's surveys that have actually found the complete opposite, and that's where we came up with this word slacktivism, right? If you actually vent, post about something, throw up the hashtag, you're less likely to do something about it. Ironically, treating anger as synonymous with action It actually means that we rarely act on the injustice. But the Bible doesn't get this confused. It doesn't get this twisted because the Bible gives us hundreds upon hundreds of commands to act. But never once does it say to do it out of anger. And consider this, like sometimes you might hear people say, well, yeah, you're angered by the offense. Let it fuel you. Use it, right? Use it. But consider this, the Roman Empire in the New Testament was pretty unjust. There was persecution There was oppression, there was executions, whether it was Christians being fed to lions in the Colosseum or or, or thousands of crucifixions that these Roman soldiers, there was injustice. And yet nowhere in the New Testament do we see, yeah, take that anger and use it. Matter of fact, we see the opposite in the the teachings of Paul. And if you go to the Old Testament, a verse I love is Micah 6, 8, where it says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, God cares about justice, and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Doing justice involves humility, not self-righteous anger. Somebody that got this and understood this is Martin Luther King Jr., who obviously did a ton to to fight injustice in our nation. And in one of his writings, he he was speaking to himself, and he said, I admonished myself, you must not harbor anger. You must be willing to suffer the anger of the opponent and yet not return anger. So again, I can feel anger, but Martin Luther King is just echoing what we've been saying again and again. You're going to feel it, but you can't harbor it. Sure, we better recognize injustice because justice is at the heart of the gospel and why Jesus came and died on a cross. But we can recognize injustice. We can grieve it, act against it, and yet never embrace rage, malice, and anger. Think of it this way. If God's love for people is really our fuel, as it should be, if God's love for people and and our command to love neighbor is our fuel, as it should be, then we should have all the motivation we need to help the defenseless and help fight injustice without needing anger in our tank to be any fuel. If we've got God's love, that should suffice. That should be enough. Another uh, famous figure is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Pastor, 
writer, wrote a book on discipleship in which he said, Jesus will not accept the common distinction between righteous indignation and justifiable anger. He said the disciple must be entirely innocent of anger because anger is an offense against both God and neighbor. But you know, a potential irony here is that Bonhoeffer wasn't just an author, wasn't just a pastor, he was an assassin. Uh, He was a Bible-believing German, and he was part of an assassination plot to kill Hitler and with a bomb. When the bomb went off, Hitler lived. Others died from the explosion, and Bonhoeffer was executed for it. So in light of that and this quote, you're thinking, well, is this guy a massive hypocrite? And I would say no, because to look at his life, to look at his letters, to look at his beliefs through his sermons was to realize this wasn't a man that was fueled by anger, but the desire to protect and defend the innocent because that's the right thing to do, to help the defenseless and to help fight injustice. This was a man who sought justice, loved mercy, and walked humbly with his God. Again, if God's love for people is truly our fuel, then we should have all the motivation we need to fight injustice without needing anger in the tank along with it. Yet David could have come up with a huge list of reasons to act against Saul when he was chasing him, trying to kill him. He could have come up with a list of reasons to act against Absalom, who was out to hijack his throne. But David realized another principle we should adopt when dealing with offense, that sometimes we act out of seeking justice and loving our neighbor and mercy and humility, but sometimes we need to simply be willing to wait on dad. Be willing to wait on dad. David simply waited. When Saul was after him, he, he hid in caves and he waited. When Absalom was trying to steal his throne, he left Jerusalem and he waited. He refused to strike back against either one and he waited. Took a massive amount of faith and a massive amount of trust, but he figured, look, if God's truly anointed me, then in his mind there was nothing that needed to be done because God would take care of it. He was willing to wait till dad got home. Look, I had three siblings. My, my older sister and I were close in age. My little brother and I were close in age and you know, from time to time, we go at each other, right? Sometimes I would offend somebody. Sometimes they would offend me. But you know, uh, if, if my sibling hurts me or offends me and I strike back, what happens? We both get in trouble. But my older sister, she had this savvy move, right? The, the mature move where if I would do something to hurt her or offend her, she wouldn't strike back. She'd just say, hey, wait till dad gets home. It's dirty, man. Did it again and again. It took me so long to learn. Just wait till dad gets home. You know, in a similar way, holding on to my offense can signify this lack of trust in my heavenly father. It's, It's expressing this fear that whatever or whoever offended me, that they might get away with it. As if God isn't on the job and it's up to me. David reminds us to wait. It's in Psalm 37, verses 6 through 9, this passage on the power of waiting. He says, God will make your innocence radiate like the dawn. And the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. It's one thing to write that. It's another thing to see David live that and actually illustrate it for us because that's not easy. Anger will come, but David tells us we can't continue in that anger. We can't let it take up residence. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust. Waiting takes faith. Waiting takes trusting. And like to to bring this to our modern context, shimmy, whatever, 
they're all over these days and they don't need to pull up to the side of the road. Usually they just pull up to their keyboard. They're not throwing rocks. They're just throwing words that are laced with malice and insults and derogatory comments. And it's so easy, isn't it, to just reply with a volley of our own because it's just words, just a comment section, right? Like, what, 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 what's the big deal? But I've learned how fruitless this is. And it, it only took me a couple times because it usually plays out like this, like phase one, somebody makes a comment. Somebody who usually I haven't had more than five minutes of conversation in my entire life. That's usually problem number one. We're trying to invest in a deep conversation with somebody we've never even invested a relationship with. The relationship isn't going to carry the weight of that conversation. Keyboards can't carry that weight. That's usually problem number one, but it, but it irks me, right? It attacks my beliefs, so I feel like I'm attacked. So I just stew for a little bit. But then phase two is you, you work up your defense. And you type something up little snark in there, and then you hit enter, walk away like, got this. And then you go home from work, you're driving maybe, so you can't reply, or it's right before dinner. You see there was a reply, you can kind of skim it, and you start feeling it again, feeling the offense. So dinner, you're trying to have a lovely dinner with your wife or kid, and all you can think about is what you're going to say, playing it back in your head. Get another notification, shouldn't be looking at your phone, but somebody else, right? A third party says something. You're not even sure what they mean because the syntax and spelling is just off, but you know it. That too, that's kind of, that offends me because they're coming at my life. So then after dinner, finally, like, all right, I'm done. I'm going to the bathroom, right? And you work up your, your reply. You cook it up and then you hit enter again. And then you're trying to, you know, have a wonderful moment putting your son to bed. But in the back of your head, you're just thinking about it. You're playing it back, playing it back. And then you, you go to bed and the impulse is to pick up the phone. Did, did they reply yet? First thing you do in the morning, check the replies. And then you do it all over again. You know what I found is easier? Step one, somebody says something offensive that's not directed at me personally. Step two, go tickle my son on the couch or do 400 other things that are more useful. The end, right? That's so much easier than going in circles. I don't control the world. I'm not going to cancel out every thought on the internet or elsewhere that doesn't line up with the word of God. Sometimes it's far better for me to just live my life, love the people around me, and let God sort out all the stuff over there, right? Our culture, though, loves to take offense and have conflict for conflict's sake. But Jesus said to his disciples at one point, when they persecute you in one town, flee to another. Conflict for conflict's sake, it wasn't his way. He tells us, don't waste your time with people who won't listen. Newsflash, that's like 95% of the internet. <laughs> so why do we waste our time? Because I want to win. Win what? I don't know, an argument, right? Like, it's the third point, final point, redefine the win. There's a Facebook video that's probably been shared thousands of times by this point, and, and the title is How to Defeat an Atheist in Two Minutes. I'm sure it's good. I'm sure there's like some good apologetics in there. The title just turns me off so much, I don't even click on it. I don't even waste my time. It's like, when did this become my MO to defeat people? Like, when was that my call? And again, I'm sure the video has good qualities. I'm not dissing apologetics. I love Ravi Zacharias, these people that do these debates and write these books about, you know, the truth of scripture and how to stand for it. But really, it's about your motivation for taking the stand. Is it to defeat people or deliver them to God's truth? Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the powers and principalities that make victims out of people that we're called to reach. We're not called to defeat anybody. You look at the apostles 
their dialogue, their conversations in the book of Acts. You know, the, the words that are used to describe uh, the interactions of the apostles are reasoning, persuading, encouraging. It was the opponents of the early church that were, quote, agitating, stirring up, attacking. You know, the early Christians were such a light because they were even killed people in like an angry, outraged world. I've said it before, but in a, in a culture of outrage, we have to be a people of outreach. Proverbs 11.30 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. So using wisdom literature's juxtaposition of the fool and the wise person, you could say that fools are concerned with winning arguments and points. The wise are concerned with winning people. Fools are concerned with looking right. The wise are concerned with loving right. Too many people are interested in winning or losing arguments. Look, I'm no longer interested. Consider me like off the board. I'm not even playing that game anymore. God wants to win people, hearts, and souls. Like, sign me up for that. But just, if you're going to reach those who don't know Christ, right, something that's crucial, something that's key, something that's a game changer, listen, stop expecting people who don't love Christ to act like Christians. Stop expecting people who don't love Christ to act like they love Christ. Look, Jesus meets some pretty wild, pretty immoral people in the Gospels. Yet you don't see him shocked by their moral behavior. Why? Because he understood. He understands human nature. It says in John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Jesus knew human nature. No one needed to tell him what mankind is really like. There's a phrase that gets tossed around a lot in our culture. I'm trying to think of a, a nicer word than dumb, but it's a dumb phrase. It's faith in humanity, right? Like, I, 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 this restored my faith in humanity. I just lost my faith in humanity. Then something restores it again, and then you lose it again. That's a, that's a flawed endeavor, right? Stop putting your faith in humanity and put it in the one who can deliver humanity, right? And this isn't about cynicism. Like, Jesus wasn't scornful or jaded. Neither should we. But it's about realistic expectations and understanding human nature so we're not constantly offended and outraged by people who don't love Jesus living like they don't love Jesus. You know, the fruit of David not buying into road rage and offense on his journey through life is that the lost were attracted to David. You know, David prefigures Christ in a lot of ways. This is one way he prefigures Christ because sinners flocked to Jesus. Sinners don't flock to his church. And maybe it's because we're too busy being offended by the people Jesus loved. Right. David, the lost were attracted to him, the down and out, the people that were dejected when he was hiding in these caves from Saul. They came to him in droves, hundreds of them. And I don't know what each people, these each one of these people believed about God and David being the anointed. But we just know that they, they came to David. And man, why don't I give up my holier than thou act and just love the people? I'm, I got to get this impulse. like, Oh, wow, they're doing that. Yeah, they don't love Jesus. Right. I don't need to rewire their morals like God is good at that. The Holy Spirit's good at that. I'm not. And it's not that I think like potentially offensive or obviously immoral behavior is good. It's I'm just not scandalized by it when somebody that doesn't love Jesus acts like, you know, they don't love Jesus. Right. If I got the worship team come up. Just one last piece of fruit from David not succumbing to road rage and not succumbing to offense and overlooking offense is David endured. He finished the race. He completed his journey. Or he gets shouted out so many times in scripture for a life well lived. And he didn't crawl across the finish line. He finished strong. I believe one reason why and how is because 
being offended all the time, it's tiring business. <laughs> it wears you out. You can be perpetually shocked and exhausted by society around us, but that's it's gonna wear you out. It's exhausting. You know, could it be? Could it be that the reason it isn't easy to stay happy is because you're so easily offended by this, that, and the third? It's hard to stay happy when we're offended by this and then offended by that, and we give into this hamster wheel of this outrage addiction of our culture. But again, there's times where like offense is, unavail- is, is unavoidable. Anger is unavoidable because somebody strikes us. Somebody hits us. It's their fault, right? You feel it, but the question is, do we let it make a home in our heart? Do we let it build resentment or do we release it? Releasing it frees you up to spend so much of your energy on other things that matter. You know, the Bible doesn't say that the world will know us by our offense at sin and calling it out at the right times. It says they'll know us by our love. Your maturity as a believer is not displayed by what stance you take, but how you love those you disagree with. Let me say that again. Your maturity isn't best displayed by what stance you take on this matter or that matter, but how you love those that you disagree with. In all, let me not say in all my years of ministry, I've been in ministry for like 10 years, right? I've never seen anybody fall in love with Jesus because a believer called them out and condemned them for their morality. You know, people fall in love with Jesus because he loved them first, even when they were still in sin. He wasn't offended. He actually took the offense of their sin and went to the cross to pay for it. Jesus didn't call people out for their sin. He calls them out of their sin. And he calls forth purpose, calls forth destiny, he calls forth life, and we desperately as the church, we need to take note. May we as the church not buy into this culture of constantly calling people out because that's outrageous over there, or that's offensive over there. May we get so busy, may we not get so busy calling people out and piling on shame. May we instead call people out of sin and into God's grace and into his love. We talk every week, we've been in this series about Romans Road and just the the pathway of salvation laid out by Paul in Romans. And one of those verses is Romans 5, 8. A little context to that says, now most people, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Again, I said it earlier, I wasn't just a mistake maker that needed correction. I was a sinner that needed salvation and a savior. And praise God that he didn't just call me out for my sin. He sent his son to call me out of my sin and to die for the penalty of my sin. And he forfeited his right. He has so much right to be angry with me, offended by my sin, yet he went to the cross instead. And Jesus said in his ministry, there was a moment where this woman was was showing him so much love and he said, look, those who are forgiven much will love much. May we be people that realize how much we've been forgiven so we love much. We give up our, our outrage addiction for a love addiction. In our culture that's so addicted to outrage, may we be people of outreach that don't just call people out for their sins or for this or for that, but we join Jesus in calling them from it calling them into grace, calling them into love. Jesus, we thank you that what we celebrated at communion, again, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we have a bad week, bad day, Lord God, there's forgiveness available. There's grace available. And God, I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ so that when we're offended, when somebody comes at us directly or indirectly, Lord God, we'd have that same grace. We'd have that same love because the world will know us by our love. 
And God, when we take your truth out into the world, I pray you would just get rid of this perspective that it's to defeat this or to defeat that in terms of people. Help us to love people. Help us to reach people, God. You put us here in this region, in Hampton Roads for a reason, because there's people that are lost, there's people that are broken, and they're thinking, man, can a God still love me after all of this I've done? God, I pray that we would be people that, that don't call them out for their sin, but we call them out from it because of your grace and because of your love. And Jesus, we worship you for your grace and your love tonight as we close. We praise you in the name of Jesus.